Hello and welcome back to Connect the Dots. It's 2023 and we are hitting the ground running in the first episode of our second season as we shine a light on local and global trends in wealth management and what makes successful women in this industry. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Today on Join the Dots podcast by Innate, I'm delighted to be joined by Victoria Rovers. Uh, she's Managing Director of Morningstar Investments of South Africa. And I mean, some of the stories and conversations that she and I have had, I mean, because she's also a very good friend as well. You know, I thought it'd be really interesting for Vicky to join me on today's conversation and really explore some of the conversations she's having with advisors at the moment. And also in light of you know, it being International Women's Day this month, I thought it'd be very interesting for us to have a conversation around uh, what makes uh, successful women in this industry and how can we get more of them. So without further ado, Vicky, welcome. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you very much for agreeing to join me. Um, and, and really, you know, tell me a little bit about your role at Morningstar. Tell me a bit about what you do and, and, and really, you know, what's important to you. Well, hi, George, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. It's wonderful to be here with you. So I lead the business um, in South Africa, and I've had the privilege to start this business. Uh, We're in our ninth year in South Africa. Morningstar has been in South Africa for 11 years, um, more on the data side. And I'm privileged enough to work with a fantastic dynamic team, which is currently 70% women. I'm very proud of that number. Um, Based 100% on merit, I must say, just uh, it was a byproduct of of candidates that applied and successful candidates. And our job is one that I take hugely seriously. It's to help people retire well, help people feel comfortable about their money. And we do that by helping advisors. So everything we do has the end investor in focus, uh, like a front of front of mind. And you know, them I know people who've got a lot of money, but they worry the most about it. And that doesn't help them at all. And I know some people who've got very little money and they worry the least, and that also doesn't help them. So our job, if we can do it correctly, really benefits people in the long run. I think the difficulty about what we do in investments is you sometimes don't see the benefit in the short term, but a lot of it is from a behavioral side. It's just keeping investors to stay invested, keeping them to stay the course, and also being comfortable and confident in their investments. Mm. And, you know, our, our listeners might not quite understand how successful you are at this because, you know, Morningstar is a huge global company. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it's about 10,000 employees worldwide. And yet South Africa is a real jewel in its crown, isn't it? It's been incredibly successful here, partly because of the great work you and your team have done, but also because the philosophy really start, really does resonate with, with South African advisors and their clients, doesn't it? Perhaps tell us a little bit about, about that journey of Morningstar in South Africa as well. Yeah, well, Morningstar, as you say, is 38 years old this year. It's an international business listed on the NASDAQ and, yep, 10,000 employees. Uh, There are 18 people in our South African business, so pretty small by comparison. But we're certainly making a dent in Morningstar, well, from a Morningstar perspective in in SA. And I love working for Morningstar. It's an incredibly easy place to work for because it's founded in principles and good ethics. And what that means is that every decision we ever have to make, whether we're building a business, whether we're working with a new client, whether we're recruiting new team members, is like, is this going to serve us in the long run? Is this the right decision for end investors and end investors? And, and is it the right thing to do? And Over time, when we started out and we were tiny and we were desperate for clients, we had no clients. We had three founding clients. I like to think of the business as a Boeing on a runway. You know, we for years, we had no clients and no assets. And Morningstar just said to me, take your time 
build a great investment process, build a great team, and the clients will come. And then this Boeing on the runway just started to take off. And it's been a magical journey. And we're very fortunate for the clients that we do work with and you know, say the team that I get to work with. But the, the beauty of what we do is we're not reinventing the wheel. So Morningstar has this wonderful investment process, all this great data, tools, technology, capital markets research. And we get to implement that in South Africa. So to leverage global best practice and bring what makes sense on the ground to South African advisors and to South African investors. And so in, in a funny way, it's been quite an easy process, but I was very fortunate that they gave us the time to really build it the right way. Yeah. I mean, that's so important, isn't it? Because uh, I certainly know, you know, launching a new platform here, you know, it does take a little while for people to warm up, for advisors to warm up and for them to understand the, you know, the 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 benefits of change, perhaps, and the ben- benefits of a new philosophy, a different philosophy. Um, one of the things I, I remember, um, which really stuck with me, Vicky, from one of your um, one of your presentations was the idea of a day one business versus a day two business. Perhaps you could just tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, I love that. It's actually, it's a, I stole it from Jeff Bezos in his 2016 uh, shareholder letter. And you know, it talks about a, a day two business is one that's defined by process, one that there's stasis in the business. And uh, it really becomes, you know, people do things because that's the way you do things. And there's bureaucracy and ultimately it leads to death, which is quite dramatic. And I love that. But what is a day one business? Well, a day one business is, you know, where you come to work with Sweaty Palms, where it's absolutely innovative, investor-focused, driven, output-driven. And in, and any and in the, the moment a process defines what you do, you know you're getting to day two business. But a, but a day one business just has this heartbeat of client-centricity and looking after your clients and no clients, no business. And at Morningstar and the team in SA, every day when we come to work, every week and every morning when I wake up, it's day one. And I think that's important because you can never get too comfortable about where things are because change is the only constant. And to keep changing, you have to keep reassessing, are we doing things the right way? Um, and, and a lot of the time from an investment perspective, actually, you, you, you need to stay true to your process, which is very difficult, but you've got to keep reassessing it and playing devil's advocate. Is this right? Am I doing things the right way? So yeah, Morningstar and particularly in the SA business, day one, every day. No, I love that. And it's certainly working for you. I mean, certainly seeing that the rise of Morningstar South Africa, particularly in, in parallel, you know, with, with other areas of Morningstar as well. I know, I know, like I said before, it's a jewel in your crown. So tell Thank me, you, Vicky, <laughs> you know, you and I see advisors all the time. We have great conversations with advisors. And, you know, advisors have been through three years of perhaps unexpected things happening. Um, you know, things coming from left field, anything from COVID to the war in Ukraine to inflate, rising inflation, interest rates, everything that, that could could come down the line does come down the line. And, and you know, it, it, it can feel quite wobbly for some advisors out there at the moment. What are the sorts of conversations you're having with advisors when you're out in the field, Vicky? Well, it's interesting because as South Africans, we're unbelievably resilient and we're faced with a lot of challenges as as we know. And um, if I think about what the world's going through now with inflation and everyone's so shocked, you know, we've been living with rising interest rates and inflation forever and a day. But just like the doctors during COVID that were super fatigued while everyone else was sitting at home and they would see patient after patient, I think advisors are feeling quite fatigued because it's tough on the ground. So the, the, the investors that they are serving are struggling either at a business level, struggling to retire, struggling with inflation, worried about the country. So we do pick up a general sense of fatigue with a lot of advisors. And 
a lot of the conversations are not around performance returns. It's around I need content and I need a positivity story so to really help us keep investors either invested or I need good news stories about the country or I need something that's just different from the general sort of, let's say, fatigue of, of what's happening. The other thing we're seeing on the investment side is really two schools of thought. So one offshore was hugely positive for many years, I guess, as you know, and, and it was affirmed through positive returns from global markets, and then a depreciating currency, which gave you that nice double whammy. And last year spooked a lot of people, particularly living in New York City clients, you had too much money offshore because there was a time, it doesn't feel like it at 18 to 1 now with the RAND, but there was a time when the RAND strengthened a bit. But just the drawdown we saw in global equities meant that investors who were drawing an income off this living annuity, really having their capital depleted. And so offshore has spooked a lot of people. And we're getting questions from advisors saying, should we be going overseas now, taking money offshore? The RAND is super weak. You know, where are we in the our asset prices depressed? Where are we in the economic cycle? And you know, work done by some colleagues of ours has actually shown that the currency, the level of the currency plays very little, it has little impact actually if you've got a longer term horizon with investing offshore. Um, but that is a challenge now to, you know, it's a difficult pull to swallow at 18 to take Mm. money offshore. Mm. And then the other trend we're seeing is just the comfort in cash. And cash rates at around 7%. We know inflation is going to sort of drop off now a little bit because um, where oil prices are from the base effect from last year. And I think that predictability factor, so so 7% is not unattractive. Mm. And even though we think domestic equities are looking quite attractive, it's quite difficult given the current environment to sort of say uh, domestic equities are looking very attractive. You just take your money out of the bank, but you're going to get a guaranteed 7% or more and put it in something that feels very uncomfortable. So there's a big move to cash. There's, there's actually 1.6 trillion rand of household deposits sitting in the bank at the moment. Wow. And how has that changed over the last six to 12 months? What was it? What, what, what were we sitting at back then? I actually don't have the number off the top of my head, but it has increased um, over the last, yeah, let's say, 12 months. There's a lot of money sitting in income funds as well. You know, South African government bonds are giving you a yield of nine, nine and a half percent. So in an income fund, you can get a comfortable yield of sort of eight, eight and a half percent, which is, as I say, in no one's books, it's, it's not an unattractive yield. And in South Africa, what we have, which is very different to global, any of our, my global colleagues, is you, you're actually getting real returns from income assets. So there's almost a disincentive to move up the risk curve. And so mm-hmm. it is very challenging, I think, for advisors, despite the fact that they know equities and real assets are going to give you better real returns over longer periods of time. It's very difficult to incentivize people to move out of a comfortable 7 to 8% return from income on cash. Yeah, I, I can absolutely see what you're saying there. And I've certainly picked up the same kind of trends myself. Um, let's just pop back to that offshore piece, if I may, just for a bit. You know, we've seen we've seen the exchange rate, you know, for, for many years, or well, not for many years, but for, for a certain long period of time, we were quite used to 15. And 15 was that that kind of like, you know, I'll, I'll move my money offshore when we hit 15, when it gets back to 15. And of course, it feels like it's moved to 18, 18.5 at some times, you know, uh, very quickly. And of course, a lot of that is driven by, the pricing in of uh, and the expectation which became reality of us becoming uh, grey listed how much of an impact do you think that's had on the exchange rate and do you expect once people get used to that new level because actually you know i certainly can't see it getting back to 15 anytime soon do you think we'll start to see more flows going offshore or will it be driven much more by uh, by the markets as opposed to the exchange rate 
So I don't think the grey listing, the actual announcement affected the RAND at that point in time too much. A lot of it was in the price, I think, from an expectation perspective that we were going to be grey listed. You know, unfortunately, a skill that we have as a country is scoring own goals when it comes to different factors around the, the way we handle things. But you know, to give you, we did some work a few years ago, which looked at what drives the RAND and, and uh, over long periods of time, because as South Africans, we always think it's it's uh, it's ourselves and about 30 to 40 percent of all movement in the rand can be explained by where we are in the commodity cycle and where emerging markets are in favor and so you know if you think emerging markets have been out of favor for quite some time we have probably one of the most liquid emerging market currencies so that would explain quite a lot of the weakness we have seen although we have seen that the commodity cycle could have picked up so we know we had a current account surplus for a while and that was very positive for us so i think that provided an element of strength then about 40 percent of the all movement in the rand can be explained by let's say the the, the us dollar so we're just the tail of the dog and what we've seen is ridiculous us dollar strength so that's what we've seen of late really drive the rand and then about 20 to 30 percent can be explained by south african nuances. So, so whether it's our weak growth or perceived corruption, what's happening on the load shedding at ESCOM, the downgrade. And so I think what we've seen this year has just been a combination of dollar strength and South African factors really driving RAND. And then you've also seen some weakness in commodity uh, in, in the resource side. So really three negatives leading us to sort of 18, 18, 15. You make no mistake, at this level, our currency is very, very cheap. Doesn't mean it needs to strengthen. Probably not. I mean, if you look over the long term, the RAND is depreciated by about 6% per annum, which is in line with our inflation differential to, for example, the US. So I don't think the RAND is going to go back to 15 anytime soon. I mean, again, another interesting stat I, I, I read was you know, since 2000, um, 81% of the time the RAND has weakened, 19% of the time it has strengthened. And that was around 2011, 2012. But it is it's just likely to weaken less. So I do think this could be a new sort of foothold that we find that around the 17, 18 mark. But I do want to disclaimer that by saying calling the currency is absolutely not a skill I have. So don't trust anything I say when it comes to that. But it it does feel like, as you say, 15 was 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 weak. Now it's kind of reset. And we just accept those new levels. Yeah, and and it takes a little while for the psyche of the general public and the, the on the on the street investor to actually get used to that new level, and then and then of course it needs a, a super attractive uh, proposition to go offshore before they even start going offshore. I think all platforms, all offshore platforms, have seen a decrease in flows in the last few months for sure. Um, okay, and then and then talk to me a little bit. Tell me a little bit about you know how uh, you know how long you perhaps perceive this move to cash, this move to to fixed income and those, you know, those safer, if you like, investments. How long do you see that that playing out for before, as you as you said yourself, people might want to start or feel the excitement, perhaps, of moving up the the domestic equities curve, the, the risk curve, if you like, a bit further that way. How do you see that playing out? I guess it's a double-edged sword, right? The fact that we have such a good reserve bank that does try to monitor or manage interest rates in line with inflation to ensure some form of uh, inflation monitoring means that, as I say, there are real returns from investing in cash and now in fixed income. And we spoke about flows earlier. And George, if you look at the flows into our bond and equity market, you know, foreigners, it's crickets. They're just, they have been net sellers for so many years. I think at the peak, foreigners owned close to like 45% of our bond market. They own well below 30% now. So, you know, despite the fact that we're offering 9.5% on our bond market, there are just no flows into these, in, into our market. So, 
The reason I'm saying that is that should there be, should sentiment change and there be nice strong flows into our bond market, bond yields come down, the RAND strengthens, you could actually see interest rates being cut quite meaningfully, and that would be very positive for the move back into equities. And that would also be very positive for equities. It would mean we're in an environment where sentiment is good, growth is strong, inflation is under control. We're not at that stage at at the moment. So it is very difficult because most investors, whether it's right or wrong, they do invest by looking in the rearview mirror. And even though we can say domestic equities are super cheap, we also know that valuation is one of the greatest drivers of long-term returns, but it's a very poor timing tool. So things can stay cheap for a while. So what that means is that investors are looking at what they can get. And and I think it's only going to be once those rates are cut and once you see some form of growth and and actual positive returns from equities that you might see investors moving into them, although it might be a bit late. So it's, uh, I, I don't know when it'll be, George, um, but I do think for investors who have got longer term time horizons, we just know that, that cash is not the place that you're going to generate good long term real returns. Vicky, you mentioned earlier about some good news stories. You know, your advisors are actually looking for good news, positive stories to share with their investors because of this kind of ongoing fatigue that they're feeling. And of course, their investors are feeling it as well. I mean, one of the things that I've picked up is the fact when you speak to some of the Forex houses, the amount of money coming into this country to purchase property from Europeans has spiked hugely over the last two years. And it's not really that South Africa has got any better. It's just that Europe has got a hell of a lot worse, particularly since the war in Ukraine broke out. It feels very close for them. They've never had high inflation like they have at the moment and energy prices have gone through the roof. And they're actually just looking for somewhere just to escape for a couple of years. And there's been a lot more talk about this nomadic visa to help people, uh, along with remote working, to help people be able to to work remotely uh, in a similar time zone, which of course is something, again, that South Africa has going for it, is this this time zone that's in in line with Europe. What what other things have perhaps you've seen that that you could share with your advisors? You know, there's one story. What what have you got? It's interesting what you say about foreigners, because when we put a job spec out from a, a South African entity, I get so many of our UK, US, European colleagues apply for the job. It's 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 unbelievable how many people do want to move here. But as South Africans, we th- there is a lot of focus on the negativity and everyone has quite a small sample size of they knew one person who's immigrating or two people. So it does tend to as in, not be statistically very relevant, but it does make you know people feel feel worse. I think the one thing from an investment perspective that South Africans take for granted is aside from the fact that even if it's retirement money, aside from the fact that you're getting real returns from cash and bonds, you're getting nine and a half percent. Let's say inflation's around five or six. Find me another asset class that while you're sleeping gives you three and a half percent real. Aside from that, in your Reg 28 portfolios, you can invest offshore. So you've got this kind of balance, right? When the RAND weakens, we actually do quite well. When things are good globally and global equities are doing well and risk on sentiment and everyone loves emerging markets and the RAND strengthens, well, then your local assets are doing well and actually your global equities are doing well. So in some ways, the RAND is the scale as the sort of um pressure valve means that if I look at February as a good example, you know, the market was down two and a half percent, but all our multi-asset portfolios were very comfortably positive, but that wasn't the case for global investors. So from an investment perspective, we're getting real returns from a lot of the asset classes and we've got a nice diversifier in the RAND there for us. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story and about how you got to where you are and, and really, you know, what you'd love to see for women in this industry. Thanks, George. Um, yeah, I, I, 
I never know where to start with with this sort of question, but I think you know first and foremost, was very fortunate to be born into an incredible family. So you know, two amazing parents, brother and a sister, and a family where you know I could do whatever my brother could do. So you know, if he went to scouts and we'd go along, like whether it was tying knots and jumping off big rocks into the water, it was never a case of there was never a differentiation between us. So growing up, it was always strange for me when you sort of found like, oh, this is for guys and this is for girls. And I'm like, but why the difference? And so I think that was really the framing of the background to the way I was brought up. And then when I studied, you know, I was a proper tomboy at school and, you know, but I enjoyed academics and I did well at academics and sport. And then studying, I have an older brother. And so let me, sorry, let me footnote this by saying, I think, you know, four, four mentors in my life have really guided the path to where I am now. And the one being my parents. So that's like two people, my mom and my dad, the other being my, my brother who, you know, helped me choose the degree that I studied. Um, and I, I hated every minute of it, actually. It was finance and maths and stats. And I was absolutely terrible. And a funny story was in fourth year, I went to the States to go and work at a ski resort. I was a lift operator. And I emailed the dean and I told him I'm not coming back, um, that I've got to get this job as a lift operator. It's going to be fantastic. And he, he emailed my parents and then my brother's parents sent my brother over to fetch me. And he said, you better come back and do honors year. And, you know, then you can be a lift operator. So really, you know, it's a great career for you. And uh, so then I came back and then after varsity, I, I worked in Joburg at Standard Bank on their grad program. And then my first job interview was on the 12th of September, 2001, the day after the, global, um, the, the Twin Tower. And I remember driving to my interview and the, the papers are quite dramatic. The traffic lights, it said, the day the world ended. And I went to my job interviews and everything was canceled. They just said no one was hiring. So I managed to, to scrape in as um, into the Sentiment grad program. I was the last one they took on. And then I had um, I, I caught a life crisis. I mean, I can say this on on the on, on this call, but I, you know, I got very badly attacked in Johannesburg, and I quit my job. I left Joburg. I broke up with my boyfriend. You know, you 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 give up everything, and, and I was very young. And then I found, and I basically my second mentor. Um, I managed to get a job in the private bank at Investec, and. Sorry, I hope this is not a long story. I will get to the point, but um, no, it's lovely. I think it's yeah. really interesting. <laughs> okay, okay. Is it, and and then I thought I don't want to be in the private bank, but I'm, I managed to get into asset management, and there I met two people who are literally my last two mentors in my life, who gave me an absolute love and passion for investing, and these guys um, were just unbelievable. So the one's name's Louis, and you know he just taught me I want to say almost everything I know, and it's. Not like about teaching you skills. It's about teaching you how to think, how to ask, how to how to be professional, how to conduct yourself in the office. And so he was just such an influence in my life, and he still is to this day. As a mentor, I see him four times minimum a year. And I, you know, as you grow, in, and and then the other one is is Ross, who is yeah, just uh, you know, an, an unbelievable person in my life. So it's interesting as you grow, you always looking up to people to guide you. And then there reaches a point where you actually have to learn by your own experiences because now I find that I'm leading this team and I'm in a senior position. It's not that there's no one above me. I've got lots of people above me, but it's up to me to make those decisions through my own experiences and my own judgment. And so the way, your question about, I guess, how did I not become a guy and like in a girl, like it, like wearing, the, you know, whatever the question was about wearing pants. It's not easy. It definitely hasn't been easy, but you just have to know like what you're good at. You have to be true to yourself and you have to find incredible women and incredible guys that are 
that supports you on that journey and know that it often looks like a straight line, but it's the furthest thing from a straight line. And George, you know, you and I are good friends and friendship I, I value hugely. And it's, you know, it's about finding amazing people who are also going through this. And and then also finding like young women that you can be a mentor to because mm-hmm. you learn as you go through this this process of but you never feel like, oh, hey, I've made it. Like It never feels like that. <laughs> so, yeah. No, you never reach the destination. And I think because the sooner you realize that, the better, huh? Because if you're always striving for that destination, you'll never get there and you never will anyway. Um, and what, what advice would you give to any young women out there um, either starting out in this industry or sort of, you know, having reached middle management, perhaps, you know, thinking, is this really for me? Uh, can I make it here? You know, what, what advice would you give, particularly for young women? I mean, I'm sure it'd be applicable to men too, but, but you know, uh, women to women, you know, and it, I mean, I know guys listening to this will think we're, going, we're about to give some advice about shoes, but, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think women really value, you know, insight and nuggets and, you know, what should I do differently? What should I do the same? How should I be? How should I show up? You know, what advice would you give them? Well, a few pieces of advice. And the first one is don't be afraid to step up. And when opportunities come, and that was probably where I got my gap in life with Morningstar was that this opportunity came along and I was terrified. But I think you just have to step up sometimes. And when those those opportunities don't come around often in life, so to young women or to young men or anybody, you know, find a gap but then like own it and and know that it's going to be a difficult and you're not going to know what to do, but you'll learn as you go along, you know, you'll eat that elephant one bite at a time. And then the other one, you know, if I guess for young women, my advice would be like, if in doubt, when I walk into a room and I'm nervous, or if you like, I step onto stage or particularly when I was younger, like just smile. It's a, it relaxes your body. You'll somebody will smile back at you and you can start a conversation. And at the end of the day, you might be young, you might be inexperienced, no matter where you are in your career, but you're just talking to somebody else who was once where you were, whether they're a guy, or whether they're a girl, and and actually just to be human about it and not to worry too much. I see a lot of young people come in and they try and be like act older than they are or try and be too serious or try and be too hardcore. And you know, at the end of the day, we're all, all just trying to get by. So that's my kind of when I walk into a room and I feel terrified, I just I just smile and I see if I can find a friendly face. And then once you have a conversation and you just be, realize you're human, then it, things just start to flow from there. And and also, just you have to be authentic. You have to be yourself. You can only be who you are. And if you're good, people will recognize that. But authenticity is something that is is very rare, but it does shine through when it exists. I couldn't agree more, Vicky. You know, I always say to people, tell a story to get a story. It's much easier to tell a story uh, that resonates with people in the room, just as you have today, uh, to get a story back. And then you can start the curiosity journey, if you like, and start making that connection and keep smiling. Vicky, thank you so much for joining me today. I've loved our conversation. I hope our audience loves it too. I'm sure they will. And I look forward to seeing the ladies and gentlemen or, or having the ladies and gentlemen listening to us at our next episode of Connect the Dots. Thanks very much Vicky. Once again, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Make sure you don't miss our next episode by subscribing to this podcast series from wherever you might be listening. I'm Georgina Smith. Thank you for joining me. Until next time. Innate is a registered trademark of Stanlib Wealth Management PTY Limited, an authorized financial services provider.